Imagine being pregnant and living at least five hours walking distance from the nearest clinic. On top of that, imagine being 16 years old and losing two of your sisters to easily treatable diseases. You're starving as you walk to the nearest clinic, and when you get there, you can't communicate with the nurse as she doesn't speak your language. And it feels like nobody cares about you. This story is not uncommon for women and children living in Niger. Niger is one of the world's poorest countries, ranking at the bottom of the UN Human Development Index. It is one of the highest fertility rates globally, with each woman delivering on average 7.6 children. It is combating with the 11th highest maternal mortality rate in the world at 820 deaths per 100,000 live births. The children's health is not promising either. Unfortunately, the country has the world's highest infant mortality rate. The child mortality rate between the ages of 1 and 4 is 248 per 1,000, mostly due to generally poor health conditions. Child brides due to poverty, teenage pregnancy, lack of education, and inaccessibility of care for women from rural areas are the major contributors to poor maternal and infant health. Fulani people are one of the nomadic ethnic groups in the country who have poor access to health services, are prone to infectious diseases, and have higher maternal and childhood mortality rates. Due to their nomadic lifestyle, conventional health systems do not reach them. Health services are usually in the hands of settled populations who do not relate well to nomadic ethnic groups such as Fulani and Tuareg. Settled populations tend to look down on nomadic people as uneducated and primitive, caused by the cultural divide. Sometimes language is a barrier as well. And for countries like Niger, providing healthcare in remote locations comes with prohibitive costs. So, in this day and age, the question is why we still have this massive gap in providing primary healthcare to vulnerable populations, causing them to suffer. If we critically analyze the issue, it goes back to the ages of colonialism. Formerly colonized nations are still suffering the effects of underdevelopment and underinvestment in health infrastructure. Prior to decolonization, Niger, like other colonial territories in French West Africa, was part of a federation-wide health system. The earliest health interventions in these colonies were intended to protect trade and provide healthcare for European colonizers only. Even the establishment of World Health Organization in the continent faced its obstacles as it clashed with colonial governments backed by the French government. So it's really important to notice the ways that European regimes actively underdeveloped these territories to safeguard colonial sovereignty, causing the current public health crisis in the continent. Unfortunately, the accessibility to healthcare for indigenous people in the whole continent is a systemic issue. So, what has been done so far? United Nations report on indigenous people's access to health services suggests a few key strategies to address the health disparities within the region's indigenous and nomadic people to improve maternal health. And the most important one is providing outreach clinics to reach remote areas. Cultural sensitivity and respecting the traditional knowledge that that indigenous communities have relied on for thousands of years are critical strategies when health services are utilized. As healthcare providers, we need to be able to come up with innovative healthcare delivery methods. One of the studies on nomadic people and their livestock revealed the higher vaccination status in the animals than in children. 
After these results, authorities decided to conduct a joint campaign bringing together veterinarians and public health workers promoting immunization within children. Maternity shelters in the hospital compounds that allowed pregnant women to come and stay towards the end of their pregnancies are also another example of innovative healthcare delivery. Training and educating healthcare workers from indigenous communities would help bridge the cultural and language barrier between nomads and the settlers. It is also the nurse's responsibility to advocate for, for the development of responsive healthcare policies that incorporate multicultural systems. Discrimination, domination, and marginalization have been violating indigenous people's human rights and threatening the continuation of their cultures. To improve the maternal health of indigenous peoples in Niger, there must be a shift in the concept of health so that it incorporates the cultures of indigenous peoples as central to delivery of healthcare systems. What would you say if I tell you that different is not as good? Because it makes me uncomfortable, it threatens me in various ways. It is unpleasant and difficult to deal with. So therefore, I don't want to meet different people and I don't want to, I don't want different people in my neighborhood. Would you agree with that comment? And how would you define my personality based on those few sentences? If you haven't turned off the podcast and swear at my personal skills yet, I'll tell you how I would define myself. Ignorant is the first word that pops in my mind, and probably someone with full of biases. Not to mention a Trump supporter. <laughs> well, I don't want to insult anyone, and I'm trying really hard to see his point as well. Before I digress any further, which I have the capability, I want to give you an outline of this podcast. I want to explore the topic of bias. Why do we have them? And do we even realize we have them? I'll try to explain little scientific background about our biases. After we explore the concept, I want to talk about how it affects providing culturally competent care in clinical or in community settings. And finally, I want to touch base the concept of cultural competency and cultural humility and we'll briefly discuss the Purnell's model of cultural competence that would guide us in our clinical and community practice to provide culturally competent care. I'm not going to try to explain to you what cultural competence is and how you can achieve cultural competency, but the main objective of this discussion is to make you aware of your own biases and prejudices and to get you to recognize them. Before I begin, here's my quick disclaimer. The following podcast expresses my thoughts, reflections, feelings, and personal experiences about my learning journey and personal growth during during the community nursing clinical practice in Mayfair, Mayfair Community School. The topics and ideas presented may not be all based on peer-reviewed evidence-based research, as they are my reflections and ex- experiences. However, the references for the theories, studies, and the research mentioned during the podcast are listed in the references in the handout. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's dive into our topic of biases and prejudices. During the last few weeks, I realized the importance of culturally competent care even more. As community health practitioners, we practice where the clients live, 
work and learn. I noticed that we are the guests this time around in our clinical rotation, unlike the other times where we make the rules in a hospital setting. I discovered some of my biases and how I unintentionally and easily pass judgments on other cultures as I caught myself on several occasions. I guess I wasn't alone because prior research and high-profile examples show that individuals tend to underestimate their own levels of bias. An overwhelming consensus of social and psychological research confirms that both race-based and gender-based bias pervade contemporary Western societies. Studies show that ethnic minorities compared to white people are treated with more suspicion in public places, considered less desirable as romantic partners, less likely to receive offers of employment, judged more harshly for crimes they commit, more likely to be shot by police officers, and less likely to receive adequate care from physicians and nurses. I guess your chances of survival after getting shot by a police officer is really slim, considering you wouldn't be getting the proper care at the hospital if you belong to a racial minority. However, despite the clear evidence for continued and contemporary discrimination, there is a contrasting tendency for people in privileged groups to deny the existence of bias. Even among younger people who tend to be more liberal, there is an impression that racism is not that bad anymore or that occurs only rarely or in extreme circumstances. In fact, an increasing number of Caucasian people in majority Caucasian countries believe that racism is a thing of the past, or that prejudice against white people is now a more serious concern than prejudice against black people. I want you to think about that comment. Can we really justify that we are the ones that are being discriminated against? I just can't comprehend that, considering all the evidence and research that is out there. But we'll park that comment there for a bit, and we'll get back back to it and try to analyze what causes that thought process. As I said, and supported by the research, we tend to underestimate our own level of bias. According to West, the author, the tendency to underestimate one's own bias can be explained motivationally or cognitively. So what does that mean? We all have an internal desire to be egalitarian and believe in a just society. This internalized motivation to act without prejudice or bias has been shown to reduce expressions of implicit and explicit prejudice. Well, that brings the topic of aversive racism, where negative connotations of racial and ethnic minorities are realized by a persistent avoidance of interaction with other racial groups. Some individuals experience an internal struggle between their aversion to racial minorities and their genuinely held principles of racial equality. So, we see a clear example of this when Trump defines himself as, quote-unquote, the least racist person in the world. Well, do I believe him? Well, I haven't seen him with any acts of overt racism, but the fact that he wants to build a wall to keep all the rapists away is a clear example of aversive racism. And we don't need to look far away to find a similar behavior in our backyard when Rob Norris, along with Don Atchison, proposed to fix the lighthouse by moving to an undisclosed location during their campaign for mayoral elections. Would I call Rob Norris and Don Atchison racist? 
I don't think so. I'm sure they all believe the racial equality in a just society. But unfortunately, that doesn't stop the aversive racism. Their genuine desires to be egalitarian could partially explain why they often believe themselves to be more egalitarian than they are. Well, in this short podcast, I can't really discuss more about aversive racism, especially if one is struggling internally. But what I want to focus on is the cognitive variables that cause us to underestimate our own bias. A cognitive bias refers to a systematic error in the thinking process. Such biases are often connected to a heuristic, which is essentially a mental shortcut. Heuristics allow one to make an inference without extensive deliberation or reflective judgment, given that they are essential schemas for such solutions. So, what do I mean by this? Uh, on this topic, I want to discuss the Dunning-Kruger effect. I know that there's a psycho—I know that there's a psychology major in our group, so I'll try not to humiliate myself. And I'm really sorry if my knowledge on this topic is really superficial. So, the Dunning-Kruger effect talks about the fact that the experts are often aware of what they don't know and engage their intellectual honesty and humility in this fashion. So, they argue that. In this sense, the more you know, the less confident you are likely to be. I would use the word humble or humility here instead of confident. So the more you know, more humility you achieve, and not out of lack of knowledge, but due to caution. On the other hand, if you know only a little about something, you see it simplistically, biasing you to believe that the concept is easier to comprehend than it may actually be. And here, I'm going to go back to that topic we just parked a few minutes ago. Now, knowing about the Dunning-Kruger effect, does that make sense why one would make a comment like that? Because unfortunately, they can't comprehend the complexity of the issue. Along the same lines, studies show that lower, lower generalized intelligence and poorer abstract reasoning skills both predict more prejudice. And I'm not trying to say that Donald Trump has lower intelligence levels. Again, because I don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> and other studies have shown that individuals lacking in knowledge about historical racism, and thrown in the culture here as well, are less able to recognize or acknowledge contemporary examples of racism, and which is known as the Marley Hypothesis. Which brings me to the importance of learning about indigenous history and culture, and the importance of cultural competency. It is really interesting to note that the skills required to be competent in any activity are often the same as the skills required to recognize that you're incompetent. So, if you're unskilled, you are more likely to be unaware of how unskilled you are and more likely than a skilled individual to severely overestimate your competency. It's ironic, right? So, to me, it sounds like the more culturally incompetent you are, the more damage you are likely to cause while providing healthcare. It's almost like being a, like being an elephant in a china shop and have no idea of the damage you're causing. So, what does it mean to be culturally competent when providing nursing care? Is cultural competency the same as cultural sensitivity or awareness? When a nurse achieves cultural competency with a specific culture, is that nurse now culturally competent with all persons of that particular cultural background? 
Uh, the survey that I sent out was aimed to get you to think about these topics and assess where, assess yourself where you are with, uh, to recognize the importance of culturally competent practice in healthcare. I'm not planning to go over or reveal the results as I intended the survey for you to be able to self-reflect and understand that culture is an extremely demanding and complex concept requiring us to look at ourselves the patients, the communities, our colleagues, and our employment settings from multiple perspectives. An increasing once consciousness of cultural diversity by education, just like we talked about, improves the possibilities for healthcare practitioners to provide culturally competent care and therefore improved care. So that's all known. But cultural competence is a conscious process and not necessarily linear. To add to the complexity of learning of culture, no standard terminology related to culture and ethnicity exists. The definition of cultural sensitivity presented by one person is the same definition that another person defines as cultural competence or awareness. But what is important is to be aware of the cultural diversity, even within the same dominant culture, because culture is the totally socially transmitted behavioral patterns arts, beliefs, values, customs, life ways, and all other products of human work and thought characteristics of a population of people that guide their worldview and decision-making. So, these patterns may be explicit or implicit, are primarily learned and transmitted within the family and are shared by most members of the culture, and are, are emergent phenomena that change in response to global phenomena. Culture is learned first in the family, then in school, then in the community and other social organizations such as church, mosque, community centers. And here the importance of community healthcare providers becomes more relevant. As community nurses, as I said, we practice in areas where the communities live, work and learn. And that's where we culturally immerse ourselves to learn more about the culture that we're working with. That's when we make our observations and assessments while being guests in their communities. So, how are we going to make our cultural assessments? There are several theories that addresses the transcultural nursing and cultural competency. My favorite has been the Purnell model for cultural competence. The model provides a framework for all healthcare providers to learn concepts and characteristics of the culture. It defines circumstances that affect a person's cultural worldview in the context of historical perspectives. Provides a model that links the most central relationships of culture, and it interrelates the characteristics of culture to promote congruence and facilitate the delivery of consciously sensitive and competent healthcare. It provides a framework that reflects human characteristics such as motivation, intention, intentionality, and meaning and provides structure for analyzing cultural data and infuse the individual, family, or group within their unique ethnocultural environment. So, I provided the image, the wheel of the model in your handouts, and I'm assuming that you're like looking at that image. So I'll briefly describe what that image depicts. The model is a circle with an outlying rim representing a global society a second rim representing community, a third rim representing family, and an inner rim representing the person. The interior of the circle is divided into 12 pie-shaped wedges depicting cultural domains and their concepts. The dark center of the circle represents unknown phenomena which shows that there's still a lot to learn. 
Along the bottom of the model is a jagged line representing the non-linear concept of cultural consciousness. The 12 cultural domains provide the organizing framework of the model. We can also use the same process to understand our own cultural beliefs, attitudes, values, practices, and behaviors. So, the cultural domains that are presented in the model do not stand alone, rather they affect one another. I won't go over in detail of these cultural domains as I'm sure you're all familiar with them. I'll briefly name them here, but what I want you to notice is how comprehensive the model is. So the overview and heritage talks about origins. Communication deals with the language and dialects, thoughts, feelings, body language, world theme, family roles and organization, workforce issues, they are quite are clear. Biocultural ecology, which talks about race and ethnic origins and metabolic effects on the, on the humans. High-risk behaviors includes the use of tobacco, alcohol, and recreational drugs, nutrition, pregnancy and childbearing, death rituals, and spirituality, which we often tend to forget about along with the death rituals. And healthcare practices also list that list the patient's traditional healthcare beliefs, whether they have magical religious or traditional beliefs or biomedical beliefs. And it also uh, touches the healthcare practitioners, so that deals with our own perceptions. And the jagged line at the bottom represents the non-linear process of cultural competence. As I mentioned a few times, competency is not an endpoint, it's a lifelong learning process. One progresses from an unconscious incompetence, not being aware that one is lacking knowledge about another culture, to conscious incompetence, being aware that one is lacking knowledge about other, another culture, to conscious competence, you're learning about the client's culture, verifying generalizations about the client's culture, and providing culturally specific intervention at that level. And finally, to unconscious competence, which automatically providing or automatically providing culturally congruent care to clients of diverse cultures. Purnell, Purnell argues that unconscious competence is difficult to accomplish and potentially dangerous because individual differences exist within specific cultural groups. And when the care is given automatically, we tend to skip that critical judgment step. As you can see, the model is quite comprehensive, which would help and guide us to achieve, provide cultural competency to, throughout our careers as healthcare practitioners. And this is really important, especially in community healthcare. So to summarize, I wanted to emphasize the importance of attainment of cultural competence through acquisition of knowledge, attitudes, and skills. Piecemeal information presented in some textbooks or in elective courses is inadequate in preparing us to respond to increasing kinds of diversity in the population and the global scope of nursing. Even less effective is the expectation that a single course, such as community health or indigenous studies, will result in students becoming culturally competent. Cultural competence is attained through a series of cumulative educational processes and lifelong learning. And while we're achieving that, we're going to make sure that we are going through a journey to evaluate our hidden biases or preconceptions. And we're going to make sure that we resist the judgmental attitudes such as different is not as good. My goal was to give you a glimpse of doubt that you may have biases, so try to recognize them as we all have them because our brain loves to use those shortcuts it's easier for it so challenge your brain be a critical thinker because you can because we're all smart
would you say if I tell you that different is not as good? Because it makes me uncomfortable. It threatens me in various ways. It's unpleasant and difficult to deal with. Therefore, I don't want to meet different people. And I don't want different people in my neighborhood. Would you agree with that comment? And how would you define my personality based on those few sentences? If you haven't turned off the podcast and swear at my personal skills yet, I'll tell you how I would define myself. Ignorant is the first word that pops into my mind. And probably someone full of biases. Not to mention a Trump supporter. (laughs) I don't want to insult anyone here. And I'm trying really hard to see his point of view as well. Anyway, before I digress any further, which I have the capability, I want to give you an outline of this podcast. I want to explore the topic of bias. Why do we have that? And do we even realize we have them? I'll try to explain the scientific background about our biases. After exploring the concept, I want to talk about how it affects providing culturally competent care in clinical or community settings. And finally, I want to touch base on the concept of cultural competency and cultural humility. And we'll briefly discuss Purnell's model of cultural competence that would guide us in our clinical and community practice to provide culturally competent care. I'm not going to try to explain to you what cultural competence is and how you can achieve cultural competency, but the main objective of this discussion is to make you aware of your own biases and prejudices and to get you to recognize them. Before I begin, here's my quick disclaimer. The following podcast expresses my thoughts, reflections, feelings, and personal experiences about my learning journey and personal growth during the community nursing clinical practice in the Mayfair Community School. The topics and ideas presented may not all be based on peer-reviewed evidence-based research, as they are my reflections and experiences. However, the references for the theories, studies, and research mentioned during the podcast are listed in the references in the handout. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's dive into our topic of biases and prejudices. During the last few weeks, I realized the importance of culturally competent care even more. As community health practitioners, we practice where the clients live, work, and learn. I noticed that we are the guests this time around in our clinical rotation, unlike the other times where we make the roles in the hospital setting. I discovered some of my biases and how I unintentionally and easily pass judgments on other cultures as I caught myself on several occasions. But I guess I wasn't alone, because the prior research and high-profile examples show that individuals tend to underestimate their own level of bias. An overwhelming consensus of social and psychological research confirms that both race-based and gender-based bias pervade our contemporary Western societies. Studies show that ethnic minorities compared to white people are treated with more suspicion in public places, considered less desirable as romantic partners, less likely to receive offers of employment, judged more harshly for crimes they commit, more likely to be shot by police officers, and less likely to receive adequate care from physicians and nurses. So I guess your chances of survival after getting shot by a police officer is really slim considering you wouldn't be getting the proper care at the hospital if you belong to a racial minority. 
However, despite the clear evidence for continued contemporary discrimination, there is a contrasting, contrasting tendency for people in privileged groups to deny the existence of bias. Even among younger people who tend to be more liberal, there is an impression that racism is not that bad anymore, or that it occurs only rarely or in extreme circumstances. In fact, an increasing number of Caucasian people in majority Caucasian countries believe that racism is a thing of the past or that prejudice against white people is now a more serious concern than prejudice against black people. I want you to think about that comment. Can we really justify that we are the ones that are being discriminated against? Considering all the evidence and research that is out there, I really can't comprehend that. But we'll park that comment there for a bit from now and we'll get back to it and, we'll get back to it and what causes that thought process. As I said, and supported by the research, we tend to underestimate our own levels of bias. And according to West, the author, the tendency to underestimate one's own bias can be explained motivationally or cognitively. We all have an internal desire to be egalitarian and believe in a just society. This internalized motivation to act without prejudice or bias has been shown to reduce expressions of implicit and explicit prejudice. And that brings the topic of aversive racism, where negative connotations of racial and ethnic minorities are realized by persistent avoidance of interaction with other racial groups. Some individuals experience an internal struggle between their aversion to racial minorities and their genuinely held principles of racial equality. And we see a clear example of this when Trump defines himself as quote-unquote the least racist person in the world. <laughs> Do I believe him? Well, I haven't seen him with any acts of overt racism, but the fact that he wants to build a wall to keep all the rapists away is a clear example of aversive racism. And we don't need to look far away to find a similar behavior in our backyard. And Rob Norris, along with Don Atchison, proposed to fix the lighthouse by moving it to an undisclosed location. Uh, would I call Rob Norris and Don Atchison racist? Uh, I don't think so. I'm sure they all believe the racial equality and a just society. But unfortunately, that doesn't stop the aversive racism. Their genuine desires to be egalitarian could partially explain why they often believe themselves to be more egalitarian than they are. So, in this short podcast, I can't really discuss more about aversive racism, especially if one is struggling internally. But what I want to focus, focus on is the cognitive variables that cause us to underestimate our own bias. A cognitive bias refers to a systematic error in the cognitive process. And such biases are often connected to heuristic, which is essentially a mental shortcut. So heuristics allow one to make an inference without extensive deliberation or reflective judgment, basically taking away the critical thinking process, and given that they are essentially schemas for such solutions. So, on this topic, I want to discuss the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I know that there's a psychology major in our group, so I'll try not to humiliate myself. And I'm sorry if my knowledge on this topic is superficial. The Dunning-Kruger effect talks about the fact that the experts are often aware of what they don't know and engage their intellectual honesty and 
humility in this fashion. So they argue that, the scientists argue that, in this sense, the more you know, the less confident you are likely to be. I would use the word humble or humility here instead of confident. So the more you know, the more humility you achieve, not out of lack of knowledge, but due to caution. Or on the other hand, if you know only a little about something, you see it simplistically, biasing you to believe that the concept is easier to comprehend than it may actually be. And here, I'm going to go back to the topic we just parked a few minutes ago. Now, knowing about the Dunning-Kruger effect, does that make sense why one would make a comment like that, that we talked about? I guess because unfortunately they can't comprehend the complexity of the issue. And along the same lines, studies show that lower generalized intelligence and poorer abstract reasoning skills both predict more prejudice. I'm not trying to say that Donald Trump has a lower intelligence level. Again, as I said, I'm not here to offend anyone. <laughs> but And also, other studies also shown that individuals lacking in knowledge about historical racism and thrown into culture here as well are less able to recognize or acknowledge contemporary examples of racism, which is known as the Marley Hypothesis. Which brings me to the importance of learning about indigenous history and culture and the importance of cultural competency. It is really interesting to note that the skills required to be competent in, an, in, in any activity are often the same as the skills required to recognize that you are actually incompetent. So, if you are unskilled, you are more likely to be unaware of how unskilled you are and more likely than a skilled individual to severely overestimate your competency. <laughs> It is ironic, right? So to me, it sounds like the more culturally incompetent you are, the more damage you are likely to cause while providing healthcare. It's almost like being an elephant in a china shop and have no idea of the damage you're causing. So what, is it, what does it mean to be culturally competent when providing nursing care? Is cultural competency the same as cultural sensitivity or awareness? And when a nurse achieves cultural competency with a specific culture, is that nurse now culturally competent with all persons of that particular cultural background? Uh, the survey that I sent out aimed to get you to think about these topics and assess yourself where you are recognizing the importance of culturally competent practice in healthcare. I'm not planning to go over or reveal the results as I intended the survey for you to be able to self-reflect and understand that culture is an extremely demanding and complex concept requiring us to look at ourselves first and the patients, the communities, our, co our colleagues and our employment settings from multiple perspectives. And increasing one's consciousness of cultural diversity by education, just like we talked about, improves the possibilities of healthcare practitioners to provide culturally competent care and therefore improved care. So, cultural competence is a conscious uh, process and it's not necessarily linear. And to add to the complexity of learning, uh, learning culture, no standard terminology related to culture and ethnicity exists. And the definition of cultural sensitivity pres pre uh, defined by one person is the same definition that another person defines as cultural competence or awareness. But what is important is to be aware of the cultural diversity, even within the same dominant culture. 
because culture is the totality of the socially transmitted behavioral patterns, arts, beliefs, values, customs, life ways, and all other products of human work and thought characteristics of a population of people that guide their worldview and decision making. These patterns may be explicit or implicit, but are primarily learned and transmitted within the family, and they are shared by most members of the culture. And they are emergent phenomena that can change in a response to a global phenomenon. So culture is not static, it's dynamic, it changes throughout the time, through the through the time. And culture is learned first in the family, then in school, then in the community and other social organizations such as the church, mosque, community centers. And here the importance of community health care providers become more relevant. As community nurses, as I said, we practice in areas where the communities live, work, and learn. And that's where we culturally immerse ourselves to learn more about the culture that we're working with. That's when we make our observations and assessments while being guests in, in their communities. So, how are we going to make our cultural assessments? And there are several theories that address uh, transcultural nursing and cultural competency. My favorite has been the Purnell model for cultural competence. The model provides a framework for all healthcare providers to learn concepts and characteristics of a culture. And it defines circumstances that affect the person's cultural worldview in the context of historical perspective. It also provides a model that links the most central relationships of culture. It, it interrelates uh, characteristics of culture to promote congruence and to facilitate the delivery of consciously sensitive and competent healthcare. And it also provides a framework that reflects human characteristics such as motivation, intentionality, and meaning. It also provides a structure for analyzing cultural data, and the most importantly, it views the individual, family, or group within their unique ethnocultural environment. So, I provided the image of the model in your handouts, and I'm assuming that you're looking at that image. So I'll briefly describe what the image depicts. The model is a circle with an outlying rim representing the global society, a second rim representing the community, and a third rim representing family, and an inner rim representing the person. The interior of the circle is divided into 12 pie-shaped wedges depicting cultural domains and their concepts. And the dark center of the circle represents the unknown phenomena, which shows that there's still lots to know about any culture. Along the bottom of the model, there is a jagged line representing the non-linear concept of cultural consciousness, which we're going to talk about in a bit. So the, the 12 cultural domains provide the organizing framework of the model. And we can also use this, the same process to understand our own cultural attitudes, values, practices, and behaviors. So these uh, 12 cultural domains uh, that are shown in the model do not stand alone, rather they are actually, they affect one another. I'm not going to go over in detail of these uh, cultural domains as I'm sure you're all familiar with them, but I'll briefly name them here, but please notice how comprehensive the model is and how, uh, how we actually need to go over all these individual domains to be able to provide the cultural competent care. So the overview uh, talks about the origins. 
communications deals uh, with the language and dialects, thoughts, feelings, body languages, worldview, family roles and organization, workforce issues, bicultural ecology, high-risk behaviors, which includes the use of tobacco, alcohol, nutrition, pregnancy, and childbearing. They're all important. And death ritual and spirituality, these two which we often tend to forget about whenever we're assessing our patients. And healthcare practices list the patient's traditional healthcare beliefs, whether they have uh, any traditional beliefs or magical religious beliefs or biomedical beliefs. And the healthcare practitioner section deals with our own perceptions. And again, at the bottom of the uh, circle, the jagged line represents a nonlinear process uh, of cultural competency. As I mentioned a few times, competency is not an endpoint, it is a lifelong learning process. And one progresses from an unconscious incompetence where you're not being aware that, that you're lacking knowledge about another culture to conscious incompetence where you're actually being aware that you're lacking knowledge about another culture. And finally, you can achieve the conscious competence and you're learning about the client's culture, verifying generalizations about the client's culture and providing culturally specific interventions. And finally, you can achieve, or maybe not, to unconscious competence, where you automatically provide culturally congruent care to clients of diverse cultures. Here, Prunella argues that unconscious competence is really difficult to accomplish. And he also argues it's potentially dangerous because individual differences exist within specific cultural groups. And when the care is given automatically, you tend to skip that critical judgment step. Well, as you can see, the model is quite comprehensive, which would help and guide us to achieve and provide cultural competency throughout, throughout our careers as healthcare practitioners. Uh, to summarize, I wanted to emphasize the importance of attaining cultural competence by acquiring knowledge, attitudes, and skills. And unfortunately, piecemeal information presented in some textbooks or in elective courses is inadequate in preparing us to respond to the increasing kinds of diversity in the population. Even less effective is the expectation that a single course such as community health or indigenous studies will result in students becoming culturally competent. Cultural competence is attained through a series of cumulative educational process and it is a lifelong learning. And while we are achieving that, are we going through a journey to evaluate our hidden biases or preconceptions and resisting the judgmental attitudes such as different is not as good? My goal was to give you a glimpse of doubt that we may have biases, so let's try to recognize them as we all, as we all have them, because our brain loves to use those shortcuts. It's easier for it, so just challenge your brain, be a critical thinker, because you can, because we are all smart.